Welcome to Ideas Untrapped, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. Ideas Untrapped is a podcast that examines the role of ideas in a political economy. It's also a podcast about spreading ideas on growth, development, and progress. Welcome to Ideas Untrapped. And um, I want to say thank you to all of you for listening and your comments and feedback. We appreciate you so much. Every now and then on the show, we record episodes that we call IU Unplugged. These are episodes that are unscripted, unplanned, and uh, a bit unstructured. So for today, I quickly spoke to two economists whom I like and respect so much and we talked about the recently released unemployment report by the National Bureau of Statistics. We talked about its various implications for the economy and they also have some very useful insights and policy suggestions. I hope you enjoy it and I want to tell you keep listening and keep your comments coming. Thank you. The unemployment report came out last week from the National Bureau of Statistics. So I just want to ask you guys, and anybody can go first. I mean, this is something we haven't seen since 2018, right? Uh So was it as bad as we were expecting, or there were some unexpected trends in the data? What are your general thoughts on that? There's a lot to unpack from the numbers, but looking at the headline number itself that says the unemployment rates that we had in the quarter, I would say it appears to be better than expected because we only saw, you know, like a 4% increase in unemployment rates within a seven quarter period. If you go back in time, typically every two years, we normally see unemployment rates increase by roughly 7 to 8%, but this time it slowed very, very sharply. But why I said that it appears to be positive is that that number is very flattering because we had a very, very low level of labor participation. So over 10 million people dropped out of the job markets for reasons that are not so clear yet. And we had labor participation rates dropped to around 68% from 78% that we had in Q3 2018. By my own estimate, if Nigeria had recorded the trend level of labor participation rate, which is around 75% historically, we would have seen the actual unemployment rate being in the region of 30% to 37%. So it does appear as if it was a positive surprise. But that was mainly because we had so many people, you know, who dropped out of the labor markets and stopped looking for jobs, possibly because of the pandemic. But one other thing to also note is that the labor force typically is driven by both the working age population and labor participation rates. And while the MBS has explained that the low level of participation rates was because people left the labor market because of the pandemic, the other part that they haven't explained very well is that why would Nigeria suddenly go from having 30 to 30.3% yearly increase in working age population to about 0.7% annualized in Q2 2020? So that is not exactly clear. And I hope that possibly when they publish the full reports, we can get more insights into why you know, and how we have such a massive slowdown in working these population growth. Okay. So Tala has pretty much covered the major highlights of the report. One other area of the report for me that I thought was interesting was regarding the methodology for gathering the data. And I mean, in normal times, prior to the pandemic, I think what NBS, what they do normally is to go out into the field to collect data from households across both rural and urban communities. But this time around, they had to change because, you know, we have all sorts of restrictions on movements and really it would have been difficult for the NBS to tell its people to, to go into the field when the old world is advocating for social distancing. So basically what changed in the methodology was rather than, you know, going to the fields to collect that data, they had to resort to telephone interviews 
what they call computer-assisted telephone interview. Um, so that was what they used to gather the data. Well, for them, this is not unusual because I think they've used telephone service in the past. But one of the challenges I think they faced this time around was that the service sample wasn't quite as large as they used to have. So that is something to note. Although, according to them, the data is still reliable and of high quality because they did all sorts of tests to make sure they could use it to project actual labor data. So I think that is one important thing to note. The other interesting bit about the report, like Turner said, we didn't get you know, unemployment report or labor data for seven quarters. And we've been in an environment where we know how companies have been performing. Yes, we don't have comprehensive data on economic performance, especially given that we have a lot of companies outside the formal sector. But for the companies who are listed on the stock exchange, for instance, we have a lot of consumer companies there. And we know consumer spending is very, very high in Nigeria. So looking at their earnings performance over the last seven quarters, it's not been very, very good. So and if you're in an economy where growth has been very, very weak, investment has not been strong, then it's really hard to see where jobs will come from. And that is really what guided sort of the expectation that unemployment rate was going to increase significantly. Now, the explanation given by the statistician general, Yemi Kale, on a tweet on Twitter was that, yes, the methodology is basically to ask respondents of the survey whether they've been looking for work in the past seven days or so. I mean, that's an interesting explanation for having 10.2 million people drop out of the labor force. I don't think that explanation is something I would fully agree to. And there are reasons why. So um, 10.2 million people dropped out of the labor force. This is a Q2 data, right? Q2, the end of Q2 was June 30th, right? 2020. Now, across the world, we know that labor force participation has increased. More people are starting to get hired and all these things. The restrictions we had in Nigeria lasted a little over a month, right? As at the end of June, we know that so many sectors have already been open. Another point to note is this 10.2 million people, who are they? They are mostly men. About, I think, 8 million of these 10.2 million people drop out of the labor force are men. Where do they live? They live in rural areas, which means the likely occupation will most likely be um, agriculture, right? They are not educated. And the question I will ask is, Yes, if people decide that, oh, they're suddenly not looking for jobs, why is it men that are suddenly not looking for jobs? We know that in rural areas, women also do a lot of agri-labor work. So why is it that it's men that suddenly decided to drop out of the labor force and women did not drop out of the labor force as much? Even when in the rural area, you have women and men both participating in agri-activities or other economic activities. So um, for me, there's so many questions unanswered, and what we can just do is speculate, to be honest. I like where you stopped, which is the proportion of men in the numbers that dropped out of the labor force. And I mean, when I saw the report, I couldn't help but ponder about all the various repercussions and unintended consequences of that. But Going back to the summaries you guys give, I know you already hinted at that, but we didn't have a report for the whole of 2019 and for some parts of 2018. So what I want to know is how much effect does COVID have on the numbers we are seeing or is the influence heavily driven by the state of the economy generally? with or without the coronavirus? Well, I think it's very difficult to be able to accurately tell how COVID really impacted the economy because of the lack of historical data, particularly between Q4 2018 and Q1 2020. So we cannot accurately tell. But I think one striking observation is that we had a very, very low low level of labor participation rates, which can be explained partly by the cyclical impact of the pandemic. Because when everybody was on lockdown at some point, and even when we had some of the restrictions being eased, it was still very difficult for you to move within states as of that period. So maybe one telling impact that we can clearly say 
is that we had a low level of participation, partly attributable to COVID. But in terms of the headline numbers, it is still very, very difficult to tell. But perhaps one area of the reports that I think we should also focus on is also the demography of the unemployed in Nigeria. Because one very important thing I'd like to point out is that Nigeria has not just an unemployment problem, but a youth unemployment problem. And to my mind, that's not an economic problem. It's a social problem and it's a security problem as well. Because when you have able-bodied youth who are willing and ready to work but cannot find opportunities, then there's a tendency for them to resort to all sorts of things. And perhaps that also explains partly why we are also facing so many social you know, and, and security problems in Nigeria. Youth unemployment is the most pervasive amongst all the categories of population demography. So we had 35% youth unemployment. That's who aged between 15 and 34. And up to 64% of the unemployed in Nigeria today, they are actually youth. And perhaps also very worrying is that university education has not been particularly rewarding in hidden social mobility, right? And why do I say so? If you look at the burden of the numbers, looking at unemployment by education qualification, you would find out that people with university education, like BSc, HND, Polytechnics, they rank among the second highest at 40.9%. And surprisingly, we also had people who are engaged in vocational jobs and commercial jobs, perhaps being self-employed, also had the lowest level of unemployment rates. So there is a problem of youth unemployment, and there is a problem of graduate unemployment as well that I think we need to have very special focus on in Nigeria today to directly face and attack the constraints that we are having in the labor market. Yeah, okay. I mean, like Tola said, it's very, very hard to be able to trace the path of unemployment or employment or the labor force. And that is why it's really sad that it's this time we have all kinds of issues with the report that needs explanation. If we had seen the quarterly trends up to Q1, it would have been easier to explain what changed or whether we can directly attribute most of the changes to COVID-19. But in the absence of like six to seven quarters of data, it's very, very hard. And that is why I thought that the National Bureau of Statistics should have offered more in terms of explaining what happened. I mean, over the years, we've complained of not getting unemployment data, and they have insisted that they are not funded to be able to conduct this survey and produce the report. So that means no work has been done, you know, over the years or what. Um, I mean, it's not something I, I think I understand. Um, mm. Between Q3 2018 and Q2 2020, we are saying, is it that the MBS did not conduct any survey or did not track any indicator that could give them a sense of how the labor market has changed and to communicate that in the Q2 report. I think that's a very troubling thing, if that is the case. Um, in any case, it's sad that we don't have that quarterly data to explain the trend. And hopefully, when they publish, we have a bit more insight into you know, what drove the changes that are currently not easily explainable. Apart from that, other interesting things to even look at is the alarming fall in full-time employment. Mm. I mean, this is why I feel we should, you know, have more information, basically. If you look at the trend in full-time employment, so full-time employment are, you know, people who are employed and who work at least 40 hours a week. And you discovered that between Q3 2018 and Q2 2020, we saw a fall from 51.3 million to 35.6 million. Now, I don't know how people see (laughs) that data and they're still calm, to be honest, Mm. because it is actually really, really troubling because we've always complained about how underemployment has issues. Why? Underemployment will not give you good hours of work. And for full-time employment, which is actually, in my own opinion, the best gauge of how healthy the labor market is you know, the best gauge of how good we are at creating high quality jobs. Because in the end, when we talk about all these social problems and talk about unemployment, poverty, people work and they are still in poverty now, right? Um, yeah. You can work 40 hours a week and still be earning 30K, which is the minimum wage in Nigeria. So we need to create high quality jobs. 
And most of these high quality jobs, you find them in full-time employment. And you were saying we had 15.7 million reduction in full-time employment. Then that is unfortunate. It's you know, a staggering amount that is unfortunate. And this is even looking at the trend from Q3 2018. If you go as far back as 2014, for instance, and compare with what we have today, I mean, what we have as a Q2, you discover that we've lost 19.6 million full-time employment. 19.6 million in terms of full-time employment. We saw a reduction in that. And the challenge is, yes, you know, as economies restart, you expect that companies will start reopening and activities will pick up. They need to hire more labor. But we know it is very, very difficult, right? It is very, very difficult to create high-quality jobs, to create full-time employment in an environment where fundamentals are not exactly very, very strong. And to buttress that, between 2010 and 2017, there was no increase in full-time employment. Mm. So it's, it's a very, very huge challenge that I think the government needs to be a bit more creative about and to be a bit more even deliberate about it. Because if you don't acknowledge these problems or see them, how do you intend to really tackle them? So it's something that I found really, really interesting about the report. One thing that I want to tie together seemingly from what you guys are saying is, I mean, what you're saying there about the drop in full-time employment and the quality of jobs, the overall drop in quality jobs in the economy, and what Tola is saying about university education not Mm. being so rewarding. I see the two as connected in a way. And some commentary I've seen in certain circles try to, I mean, we are all on speculative grounds here until we have more explanation, try to talk about the skill level of the workforce. I mean, that's kind of funny to me because regardless of the level of skill of the workforce, which we can all agree is not so high for other reasons, education and other kinds of things. I don't think the economy is creating enough decent jobs in the first place. And I don't think that the level of compensation in the labor market because of these things would be particularly attractive to graduates. What are your reactions to that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I fully agree with you in that the the economy itself is not creating enough quality jobs for the people who are entering the labor markets. On average, every year, over 3 million people enter the labor force net. And if you consider the fact that the MBS is seemingly saying that the low participation that we had in Q2 was because of COVID. So that means that by Q3, we should even expect more people to come back to the labor force. So that means that we're going to be seeing roughly around 13 or 14 million new people being in the labor force by Q3 2020. And the challenge will be how to create enough opportunities for these individuals. And unfortunately, Partly due to the macroeconomic imbalances that we are facing at the moment, with growth very, very weak, running far below long-term trend, with inflation rates skyrocketing, with what has turned into a periodic FS liquidity crunch, right? It will even be much more difficult for the private sector to take on this burden. Now, the government has come out with what they called a special public works program to more or less ease that burden. And they are promising to create 774,000 jobs, essentially 1,000 jobs in this local government area in Nigeria. But like I said initially, you are having 30 million people coming to the labor force, roughly, post-pandemic. So that's not going to go anywhere near what we need to actually make a dent on the unemployment numbers. And to make matters worse, the jobs they even intend to create, they are low-quality jobs. They're going to be paying the basic minimum wage. So definitely, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But the solution to creating high-quality jobs, I would say, has to come from the private sector, not the public sector, as the government is going about this right now. Because at the end of the day, government doesn't have the capacity, the fiscal capacity to employ so many people and pay them quality wages, right? But for you to allow the private sector to do this job, you also have to create a very enabling environment for them to function. And beyond that, I think that 
we also need to have a conversation about how to expand Nigeria's growth frontiers beyond services and more into industry and even agriculture. So um, when Nigeria came back into democracy in 1999 and we had the administration of President Obasanjo coming to power then, one thing that we have to praise that vision for is that they contributed a lot to the growth of the services sector today. As now a very, very large employer of labor, right? So we had the banking sector reforms that created, you know, millions or let me say thousands rather of high quality jobs, relatively high quality jobs. We had mm-hmm. the telecom sector reforms that created thousands of high quality jobs, right? Mm-hmm. We also had a number of initiatives that also created jobs in trade and general commerce in general. But the limitation of that model is that services are very difficult to scale and export because they are very, very competitive. Areas where you can export services, they are when you talk about education, tourism, healthcare, or technology. But these are very, very highly competitive areas that you need to invest a lot to the quality of your workforce that we don't have today. For you to be able to attract the needed investments for you to scale services into export-led growth. I know this is very controversial because people talk about having industrial policy being a wrong solution to the problem because it has not worked for so many countries in the past. But I believe that we need to find a way to scale industry and agriculture. And scaling industry and agriculture is essentially a productivity problem, right? Because even though you think you're running away from competition in services, I'm going to miss competition in industry and agriculture as well because you have so many countries in the world who have invested a lot in their countries in terms of infrastructure and human capital and even quality of regulation to be able to be very competitive in industry and agriculture. But I think if we are going to have an export-led growth, right, the areas where we can, to a very large extent, be able to scale a lot more faster as a short-term solution is perhaps industry and maybe agriculture to a very lesser extent. I say industry because thanks to automation, right, you don't need to have the best skilled workforce today to compete in industry. If you compare the workforce of the Chinese and the Americans or many of the big Western countries, for instance, innovation is more prevalent in the Western countries. But where do you see industry growth? Where do you see industry exports? They are coming from the developing countries in Asia, uh-huh. right? Who are not as innovative. So I believe that with the you know, benefits of technology, with the benefits of automation today, Nigeria has to be at the forefront of industry-led export diversification so that we can create enough economic opportunities in the private sector to more or less help us in solving the critical, what I call not just an unemployment problem, but a huge unemployment problem. Dio, what are your reactions to that? There's a lot to unpack there. But before I go into policy, let me just take us back to some of the fundamental problems we have. Mm. Yes, it is true that we have relatively poor quality of graduates in Nigeria. But like Chola said, and like you said, Toby, I don't think that explains challenges we have, really. For me, one of the fundamental problems we have is around really the structure of the economy, Salah, that you alluded to already. The last employment report we had that was disaggregated by sector, and see from that data is that agriculture contributes around 24% to nominal GDP, but employs 8% of total employment in Nigeria. So that's a strong mismatch, basically. So the sector that has sort of supported growth in Nigeria between 2018 and 2019, accounting for 50% of the ICT sector. But if you go back, you discover that even the ICT sector, there's also a severe mismatch between GDP and employment in the ICT sector. Because the sector for instance contributes around 8.6% of GDP. But that doesn't employ up to 1% of Nigerians. The same goes to the real estate sector, which is also a very, very big sector, around 8% of GDP. But the contribution to it is basically 0.1%. And like last year, yes, obviously manufacturing and services are more higher productivity sectors. They are sectors with better for graduates. And what the government should really start thinking about is how do we create employment in manufacturing 
and in services. Well, in services, we really don't have that much problem because services, for instance, contribute maybe around 55% of GDP. And the services sector already employs around 45% of total employed Nigerians. So there isn't a lot of problems there. But in manufacturing, we know that manufacturing output in Nigeria is actually very, very poor. And we know that no-skilled manufacturing or like manufacturing, as they call it, is where you can accommodate a lot of labor. So I think it's one area the government needs to look at, really, in terms of looking at your demographics, looking at your GDP, looking at the structure of employment, looking at the future. Where do we need to focus on? I think it's in basically manufacturing and services. The obsession with agric should stop. If we want to feed 400 million Nigerians, which is our estimated population by 2050. You need to even look past the current model because even now we have 48% of people who are employed in Nigeria in agriculture and we still can't feed the country. How do you explain that having half of people employed in Nigeria in agriculture yet we can't feed the country? It shows that really small older farming is not the way out and we need to start creating more opportunities. And that is why I think the Nigerian problem is more or less a policy or macro problem, not the problem of not having skilled graduates. Policy or macro problem in the sense that government's overall policy, what are the objectives? Like I said, it's mainly agriculture. They are killing services. Trade is not doing well. And trade is one of the largest employers of labor, for instance. The second largest sector, actually, after agriculture, both in terms of GDP contribution and employment. Yet we are not doing well enough to support trade. Manufacturing, again, I'm not sure we're doing well to support manufacturing because currently a lot of manufacturers still need to import, right? They import raw materials. A lot of manufacturers are exporting, but we shut the land borders. So even the low-hanging fruits of, you know, conducting trade with neighbors, trying to export, we are not taking advantage of that. I mean, academic literature would usually suggest that firms who export are more likely to have stronger cash flows, are more likely to have stronger employment. And the spillovers, basically, to the rest of the economy is usually better. So it's a policy problem. It's also a macro problem in the sense that the environment is not even one in which people will be looking to invest. I'm not sure businesses are that confident about the prospects of the economy to continue to want to invest. In the manufacturing sector, you look at capacity utilization, and you discover that capacity utilization in manufacturing is below 50%. So the question is, what do you do with this excess capacity? You think of trying to help companies to export it at least to neighboring countries where we are, you know, even more competitive. But you're shutting the land borders. So it's a policy problem. It's a macro problem. How do you solve your FX crisis? How do you ensure that we bring down inflation to ensure that we can start driving cheap credits to businesses? How do we ensure that we fix infrastructure such that it is easy for businesses to move goods, to source raw materials, even within Nigeria? Those are all the concerns I'm thinking of that I think the government needs to really look at. If you're the government, right, which is, I mean, we've, we've gotten into policy grounds here. Even though, yeah, you want to think in the long term, but you also have to think in terms of the next couple of months. So, mm-hmm. like, what are the things that the government should be doing now, today, to fix some of these problems? I mean... Just off the top of my head, I can think of a few binding constraints. I mean, you guys talked about inflation. Shout out to Sean Smith, by the way, who makes sure that we don't lose sight of this problem. What food prices is doing to the already falling earnings of Nigerians is terrible. Trade is one area where we can relax some of these constraints. I mean, there's FX, there's the overall business environment and the communication from the government to the private sector. Right now, it feels hostile and it does not inspire confidence. So, but again, I'm asking you, if you're the government and you really want to tackle these problems, and like Omotola said, you're not going to fix it by creating 700,000 jobs in the entire country where you have tens of millions of people unemployed. So what are the immediate steps right now, today, that the government should be thinking about? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, So I I would say three things. The first one is that macroeconomic stability is so underrated. 
And what do the macroeconomic stability? It means steady GDP growth expansion. It means FX stability. It means low and stable inflation. Those three are very, very critical. I was reading Bloomberg one day, and one manufacturer in the healthcare industry was lamenting that he was able to get loan intervention from the central bank, but he cannot do anything with that loan because he cannot get the impulse he needs to actually begin to manufacture drugs in Nigeria because there is simply no access to FX. So macroeconomic stability, it has become underrated in Nigeria today. Meanwhile, it is the foundation, it is the building block of economic prosperity. So I think, number one, we need to get the governments, both the fiscal and the monetary authorities, to realize that they have to go back to the basics, making sure that we get right macroeconomic stability, that we have FX liquidity, very, very important. If there is no FX liquidity, you know, we talked about having industrial-led growth. Uh, that would be possible, you know, because we can easily get access to automation technology from all over the world. But if there is no effects for you to get this technology, then there is no way you can compete. So we need to go back to the basics, achieve macroeconomic stability, FX liquidity and stability, low and stable inflation, and let us have a decent economic growth. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I think Nigeria has a very unique opportunity now with the continental free trade agreements that I think we should be the country driving that initiative all over Africa today. And why do I say so? This continental free trade agreement owes the opportunity or the promise of integrating the entire African region by reducing trade and non-trade barriers and eliminating tariffs, right? But one thing we also have to understand is that Nigeria has the largest market in Africa and we can actually use this to our advantage one of the most important things in industrial competitiveness is that you need scale to achieve competitiveness. So that's where China gets its right. That's where Vietnam, you know, and so many other Asian economies get its right. You need scale to be able to lower your cost and compete with the rest of the world. And while we have the largest markets in Africa, it is not really enough, right? But now we have the opportunity to be able to export our producers into a $1 trillion economy at zero tariff. So I think this is a unique opportunity. If Nigeria is going to diversify its exports into industrial households, the best place to start the fellow African countries who have similar challenges with you and who have similar productivity challenges with you. They're not going to start with trying to compete with China in China or trying to compete in the US with China which is also exporting to the same country. No. You start with your neighbors right here, who you are at similar level of development with. So I think Nigeria should be the driving force for this initiative because it is a very, very unique opportunity. And thirdly, we've talked about industrial goods a lot, but I think we also need a special focus on agriculture. I know Daniel spoke about the authorities being very, very obsessed with agriculture. So I say focus on agriculture not because it will solve the unemployment problems. No, because like I said, you already have a disproportionate number of people working in the agriculture sector. Meanwhile, we need less people being engaged in agriculture. But I say agriculture because of the need to actually have a very resilient external account and to be able to also diversify our exports as a country, right? Productivity in the agricultural sector is extremely low compared to the rest of the world. And so that means that there is an opportunity for us that if we are able to improve that productivity, then we can or we will be able to also get some sort of export revenue, you know. So Nigeria's major external sector problem today is that we are extremely reliant on crude oil as a source of export revenue, and we have become so much reliant on foreign portfolio inflows rather than FDI for capital and financial accounts flows. So we have to de-emphasize both. We need to diversify the exports. I want to also diversify the sources of external financing beyond FPI to FDI. And in trying to achieve this, I think we need to try everything possible. You know, we need to have focus on agriculture. We need to have focus on industry. Not because agriculture will solve your own employment problems, but because you can also get very decent exports revenue from there, and you can also achieve to an extent food security. Now, 
when I say focus on agriculture, I do not mean going by the path that we currently have of uh, using restrictions, of uh, launching uh, intervention funding with zero accountability. What I mean is that we have to do the hard work of extension services. We have to do the hard work of having a very good supply chain of agricultural inputs, of subsidized agricultural inputs, including fertilizer and seedlings for our farmers. We need to do the hard work of investing in irrigation and dam infrastructure. Then when you get all these things right, then you can begin to use trade tariffs, for instance, to also encourage and protect your local farmers. But what we are having now is that we have been not doing all the hard work and just going for the easy things, like placing banks here and there, giving an intervention financing with zero accountability. It has just solved the problem. So over the past 34 years, agricultural sector growth has been slowing. You know, part because of security concerns, which is another thing we also have to tackle. So essentially, just summary of my three points, macro stability is underrated. We need to go back to the basics. Secondly, we have a unique opportunity with the Continental Free Trade Agreement that we have to leverage on. And thirdly, while I believe agriculture won't solve your unemployment problems, it can solve the other macro problems. But we have to solve that problem the right way, other than what we are having at the moment. All right. Dial. Yeah, uh, that's pretty thorough from from Ola. And <laughs> it was funny because when you asked that question, I was making notes and I basically have to go back to the basics in my notes too. So it was kind of funny mm-hmm. when you mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with all the points Ola made around, you know, regional trade, macro stability, and so on. Like I said earlier, we already have excess capacity in some sectors. We need to start thinking about um, Nigeria is a big market, it's a big market. Yes, but we don't have the spending power. So, and that is why capacity utilization is a big problem for a lot of businesses. So to maximize it, or at least to improve it, we need to start looking at other markets. Obviously, I'm not quite optimistic. This administration cares about that. So for me, I think I have about three points too. The first one, and this is all in addition to what Allah said, is Start communicating, really. I think communication is underrated too, from policymakers, I mean. Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Trade and Investment, and the Central Bank of Nigeria, I believe they are absolutely critical to any plan or any goal we have in terms of economic development over the short, medium to long term. But the problem with Nigeria is there's a communication gap. Even within the government, we can see how difficult it is for them to agree on a particular agenda, right, and implement the agenda across different ministries and departments of government itself, not to talk about communicating to investors, to businesses, and even to households. One of the problems we have when you don't communicate is agents in the economy will start making their own assumptions about what they are seeing on ground, and they will start making their own decisions based on that. Two examples why communication is sort of a problem we need to face. The FX market, for instance, now we know there's a lack of clarity. For instance, we don't know when CBN will start the resumption of FX sales in the INU window. Investors don't know when the CBN will start relaxing its capital controls so that they can, you know, those who want to exit should exit, those who want to bring their money in should bring their money in. And what that means is the CBN is creating problems for itself. Because a lot of the demand you see in the market, for instance, people will start expecting that, oh, I mean, the way things are going, you could have more devaluation. Next week, I might not be able to get dollars. In the next two months, I might not be able to get dollars. And you start front-loading your dollar demand, right? Another point I see is around, you know, the interest rate policy of the central bank. How long is this going to continue? Energy abuse is below 3%. How long is this going to continue? All across the world, we know that central banking requires good communication, right? You have to guide investors and basically all agents within the economy. And that ensures that they are also able to plan around the map you have sort of created. As long as they see that you are consistent with these plans, then they'll start adjusting their behavior in the favor of your plans. And failure of communication as we have currently, is that you have short-term dislocations and all sorts of instability because things that should naturally evolve with your plan going into the future, short, medium, and long-term plan, businesses start making decisions that is best on them based on the realities on ground. 
And guidance is basically you telling them to look ahead. You know, this will change or this will improve or we're looking to do this or we're looking to do that. So for me, I think it's something we need to start doing. And if you are going to have, which is Stoller's first point, you're going to have a stable macro environment. You can't do it when you're not communicating properly. How would I trust that you're going to fight inflation when your inflation target is 6 to 9% and we've been doing over 9% for about four or five years now? right? And that's not the only problem. The other problem is that you are not even committed to this target. You are not consistently making policies that will show that, oh, the CBN in Nigeria is really, really interested in fighting inflation. If you are fighting inflation, why would you start putting all sorts of effect restrictions on food, on the importation of food, when you know it is going to create more problems, right? So it's that consistency in terms of policy that's a problem, in terms of communication, we are not doing it. And it's very, very hard to manage expectations in the market, the FX markets, even for inflation without communicating properly and ensuring that your policies are sort of consistent with our objective. I think going back to that would be crucial. Second is easing problems. We need to make things easier. This is one of the articles to be published on Ideas Untrapped when this whole pandemic started. It was about slack and scarcity, right? If I remember correctly, one of the problems we have in Nigeria currently is that the government doesn't have enough resources, right, to support businesses, to support households. Even businesses in Nigeria don't have a lot of resources in terms of cash flows. They don't have access to financing too. So when you're in an environment where businesses are finding it hard to find support, whether the support they can generate internally or even within the environment from government or from banks and all those things, and households are also finding it difficult. They want to work, they can't find jobs. They're out of jobs. There is no social safety net, right? They're investing money, but you're saying you're going to give them treasury bills rate of 3%. Meanwhile, inflation is 12%. So it's basically you eating businesses and households on all fronts. And how do you make these problems a little less difficult for them? It is by easing their problems. That goes to, for instance, what we're seeing in Lagos State, where the government is coming up with all sorts of taxes on businesses. For POS, people who are doing POS, which is one of the low-quality jobs being created in financial services, you're still taxing, you still want to tax them on businesses in transportation sector. Meanwhile, Lagos has one of the worst transportation problems in Nigeria, yet you're taxing businesses who are working hard to fix these problems. So for me, I think the second point is we need to start easing problems. We need to start showing that we are for households, we are for businesses, and that is communicated across all departments and agencies of the government, from getting it very, very easy to get your passport renewal done, to opening up, starting a business, to not fearing that regulators are going to start harassing you, to ensure that if you are going to need a NAFDAQ approval, you're going to get it in time to develop the product you want to develop or anything. To ensure that, yes, we have terrible transportation, but if I'm on the roads, I shouldn't have to be paying bribes when I get to all security checkpoints. Those are all the things when government starts doing, you slowly, you start regaining public trust. And it is something that can start now. The final point I'm going to make, it's also going back to the basics, and it is that growth creates employment. Um, Yes, we live in an era where there was this propaganda that, you know, we had high growth, but there were no jobs. We didn't create jobs, which is a lie. I remember reading a World Bank report where the World Bank was looking at the trends in employment in Nigeria, and they discovered that one of the challenges we had then in terms of reporting, data reporting, was that even though it was reported that, oh, Nigeria didn't create jobs, they later found by using another sort of methodology that, in fact, jobs were actually created during that period of high growth in Nigeria. The problem then was around, I think they noted the 2009-2010 household survey, where they said there were technical difficulties in implementing that survey, and that sort of affected the data that was produced. They actually recalculated, based on the other data they have available to them from surveys that were done subsequently, they were able to estimate that poverty actually fell within that period where we had high growth. One thing I want most people to note is if we didn't have that period of high growth where we had reforms that created jobs, where we have higher quality jobs created, like Tola mentioned, we would probably have had very worse poverty numbers. So the claim that you know growth doesn't create employment or doesn't lift people out of poverty 
or that you can't eat growth. I think it's incorrect, and we need to start just recognizing that the way out for Nigeria is trying to kickstart growth, you know, encouraging businesses to start new businesses, new ideas, innovation, produce more output. Yes, people eat growth. In fact, if you don't eat growth, what do you eat? So, yeah, that's my final point. I think it's very, very critical to recognize that growth actually creates employment. And for the government, the critical part is how do we start these gradual reforms in productive sectors? And by productive sectors, I mean sectors where you can have high productivity, like services and manufacturing. How do we focus on these sectors? How do we think of embarking on reforms that would make it easier to conduct business in these sectors, thereby creating jobs? For me, my final point on Tala's agric policy focus my problem is not really the focus on agriculture. I have no problem with focusing on agriculture. The problem I have is solving agriculture with the current structure and with the current policy the government is pursuing. It's going to be very, very difficult. And simply my point is, if you want to scale agricultural productivity with a small order farming sort of labor where they have no skill, they have no resources, it is going to be very, very, very hard to scale productivity in agri with them. And finding ways to encourage productivity in agri sector, I think it's a critical task that the government is not looking at currently. Interesting points all around. A few things that you guys mentioned, and I want to touch on briefly. Dio, your point on communication is so key. I don't know, some people say that the government is poor or bad at communicating. I don't see that problem, really. I see the government as communicating exactly what it wants to do. Hmm. Because I read the Economic Growth and Recovery Plan by the vice president-led committee. And if you're projecting a 35 million job loss, 35 million people job loss, from the effects of the pandemic. And the very first item on your policy proposal is government revenue. Then in my opinion, you have your priorities wrong. And that has reflected in the moves that the government has been making. Going back to Tola's point, one metaphor I like very much during the great financial crisis that started in the US housing market, One metaphor I like very much was from Paul Krugman when he was advocating for qualitative easing. You know, that as a central bank right now, you just have to make a commitment to be irresponsible. And I think our policymakers and our CBN have to do the opposite. You have to make a commitment, a convincing commitment to investors and various actors and agents in the economy to be responsible, you know. And of course, Tola's point on trade is also very important. I I was looking at the Brookings data and only 7% of our exports go to other African countries. That, for me, is a potential right there that we can explore. But talking about all these things, where it all comes back to, and I know you guys are economists, so you may not want to speculate or get into, but where it all comes back to is the government politics. Do you think, do you guys think that solving this problem right now, that the government recognizes its role in the economy because right now i see regulators and bureaucrats trying to compete with the private sector as the most important economic agent or principal i see bureaucrats and uh, politicians who don't really believe in the power of the market you know i see bureaucrats and politicians who underrate or do not understand the importance of macroeconomic stability and everything you guys have talked about. Do we have a basis for optimism or should we just wait it out and cross our fingers? That's my final question. Maybe Daniel should go for this time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you guys know me already. Know. I feel like this is a trick question coming from Toby. I know. Is it? Is it really? I mean, oh, oh, okay. I mean, Obotola talked about industrial policy, which is a yeah. good example. Uh, and I know that you and I, we've had this debate a couple of times already. Yeah. I mean, we even made it public a couple of times. I'm a big advocate of industrial policy. You know, I agree with Tola. But one thing I can't take away from Dario's argument is the government that is implementing an industrial policy matters. You know, it's basically the difference between import substitution industrialization that hasn't really done well in Latin America and that we are cyclically repeating in Africa and what they have been able to do in Asia. The administration, the political actors that are driving these policies matters. You can have the right idea or the right policy basket being implemented by the wrong people or the people who don't understand or who don't really get the nuances of the issue and they make a mess of the whole thing. So it's not a trick question. I just want to get your reaction, guys. Okay. I mean, for me, and it's something I've always said, you know, if you ask the President Buhari government if they're pursuing an industrial policy, if you ask Godwin Emefili, who is, you know, the Central Bank Governor of Nigeria, Central Bank of Nigeria's governor, rather, if he's pursuing or implementing policies that support industrialization, he's going to tell you yes. President Buhari too will tell you yes. And that is what Toby has alluded to in saying that, um, yeah, industrialization, but your own is import substitution. How well does it work? And how good are you at implementing these policies? So I think it's a question that needs to be answered in Nigeria, which one we want to do. But for me, I'm, I'm not optimistic because of the quality of people in government. And I think I've had these discussions with Toby a lot of time. I don't think an economy can expand faster than sort of the ideas you have coming out of government. And that is why when Tola said during the Obasanjo era, yeah, it wasn't as if it was a perfect administration, but you could see movement in terms of thinking, in terms of reforms, the debt market reforms, the pension reforms, the telecom sector reforms, the banking reforms. There were so many reforms. And you could see that, yes, these people are thinking about the future. The policies are forward-looking. And that depends on the kind of people you have in government, the quality of people you have in government. Not just the people contesting for the elections, but also their cabinet and also even the civil service itself, the quality of people you have in the civil service. Now, if you put all these things together, yes, right now, if you're judging or if I'm going to assess Nigeria based on what is happening, and based on the fact that we won't have a change in government for the next three years, then it's clear that there's no reason to be optimistic. If we are in the middle of what even the central bank and the Nigerian government describes as we are in the middle of an unprecedented shock, like this crisis is of a very higher degree of magnitude than we've seen previously. And we've still not seen thinking in a different light, that is, Policymakers, the way they are thinking has not changed. From the last crisis, 2015 to 2016, we are repeating the same mistakes we made even now. And we are in the middle of a very major pandemic when the government says job losses is going to be in the tens of millions. And the question is, when are we truly going to realize that things are not going well and we need to really change our ideas? Yeah, I I can be pessimistic a lot, but it's due to things I'm seeing on ground. And my own is if governments and the central bank governor and other policymakers cannot arise to the occasion in the middle of a pandemic and start thinking in terms of new strategies that will truly help Nigeria to accelerate growth and development and also to adjust better to shocks. Because we know that these shocks come quite frequently and we can't escape them. So how are we preparing for the next shocks? How are we communicating with people and with businesses, what policies are we taking? I mean, I read on Reuters, was it yesterday, that we have a $1.5 billion loan we want to get from World Bank. And what is slowing it is partly due to failure of Nigeria to implement some reforms. And by the way, we are in the middle of a pandemic where we are saying full-time employment has reduced by around 16 million. And yet 
we are still very, very reluctant to implement these reforms that will sort of support the economy and support households and support businesses. The question is, when are we ever going to do the right thing? I don't know. So um, I'm not so optimistic that we're going to see a different change. Of course, my opinion changes along with what I see policymakers doing. And once I see that improvement in terms of long-term strategic thinking, then I guess my opinion can change. For now, I'm not optimistic that we're going to see any significant change going forward. Okay. Tola. Okay. Uh, I, I knew how Daya was going to respond. <laughs> but I'm, I'm slightly a bit more optimistic than he is. And why do I say so? I think the government's heart is in the right place, although the execution could be done, you know, a lot more better than it's being done today. But in terms of how I think the economy could evolve over the medium term, I think we are seeing some progress in some key areas. Nigeria is attracting a lot of investment in heavy industries now. We are seeing a lot of investment in petrochemical refining. We are seeing a lot of investments in, in solid minerals and mining of solid minerals. In terms of infrastructure investment as well, I think we have to give credit to the current administration as well because I think we actually seen capital formation improving generally. And even if you look at the numbers from the NDS, last year we had the highest ever capital formation in the history of the country at about 25% of GDP. And mm. even if you look at what the CBN is trying to do today with the NSIA and even the presidency, they're even trying to even do a lot more in actually investing in infrastructure. So all these things are positive. You know, we have to give credit where it is due, but they are not really enough to create a prosperous country because even if you build infrastructure, if you do not create the enabling environments for investors to come and actually site their businesses in your country, then you might not extract the full benefit of that infrastructure. So there's a lot to be done in several areas, but I think the government has its right in the right way, but the execution could be a lot more better. And what also gives me concern, on the other hand, is that our fiscal accounts, they're in a very, very terrible shape, and the government has overextended itself in trying to solve all the problems by taking on a lot of debts and incurring a very, very high cost of servicing those obligations. So that gives me a major cause for concern. And that's what has even tempered my optimism, because sooner or later, we are going to face a day of reckoning where we have to more or less, you know, rebalance our fiscal account. And it's, it's not going to be very pretty. So that's what actually more or less has tempered my optimism. But I also think that the country has a lot of potential. We have the strength of the diaspora. We have a bubbling entrepreneurship spirit. We're also seeing a lot of innovation, you know, even amongst youths in technology and also the digital economy. So there are pockets of optimism here and there, but there are also some major areas of concerns. What I would just say to wrap it up is that the situation is not so bad to the extent that it cannot be salvaged, right? Things are heading for mm. a very, very bad run, but things can still be salvaged. We just need to see a lot more creative thinking by the government to actually allow the private sector to do the heavy lifting in a number of areas. So, for instance, I talked about the fact that we're having strong capital formation, but that's been driven mostly by the federal government through the Central Bank of Nigeria. But now, Central Bank is not trying to change that story by setting up a proper infrastructure that will be housing some of those infrastructure projects. So, in some ways, I don't think it's a totally irredeemable situation, but we also have to see a lot of creative thinking to turn things around. So whether I'm optimistic or not, I would just say, um, let, let me use the, the very, very famous analyst lingo. You know, that totally means, not, that, that means absolutely nothing, but we like to use that <laughs> word a lot. Yeah, I, would say mm-hmm. I, I am cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 means, it means nothing, but it still implies that there are some bright spots and there are several areas of concerns. And we can still make the best outcome out of this very, very dire situation. So in a way, I'm cautiously optimistic. Before I let you go, guys, um, again, and I promise it's not a trick question. But I mean, <laughs> listening to Omar Tola, I just want to ask, 
how much of this is a failure of coordination in a way? I mean, like you like you rightly point out, it's not all bad. And the government is making some right moves in some areas. But how, how much of it is really coordinated behind a central vision from the government or a single agenda? Because you can have a situation where you're driving broadband expansion by reducing a right of way rates. And at the same time, the FIRS or whatever is imposing taxes on the same sector that you're trying to drive investment and consumption. You know, so how much of it is really a coordination failure, you know, in terms of one arm or one MBA of the government not properly coordinating with the other? Yeah, I, I mean, you, you said, I mean, you, you said it all, to be honest. And this is one of the areas where you have to be very, very critical, you know, of the administration of President Buhari, because we haven't seen a lot of coordination and also thoroughness when it comes to policy matters and also handling interagency rivalry. So a, a couple of days ago, we saw a, a fight that broke out, you know, between NIPOS and FIRS. And we've seen mm. a number of such happening here and there. So I think it does have to be a lot more commanding in some respects, particularly when it comes to handling the economy. I know I know everybody has his own forty and he's clearly not not an economist. He, he has his own forty in other areas. Uh, he commands respect, he has a strength of character that he can use to push through very difficult reforms. And although some people can argue that he has actually drawn down on his political capital. But today, he's still very, very popular in several areas of the country. And I think he can still use that's his strength of character, his popularity, to actually push through more serious reforms. All he has to do is just to make sure he has the right people at the right place who are coordinating things, and then he gives them the backing. In the government of President Obasanjo, for instance, although he's a bit more cosmopolitan and is a bit more, you know, suave. He understands policy issues better. But he gave the key people in the administration, he gave them a lot of backing. So he had people like Nasir Herbufai, Okonji Iviala, Obieze Kwesili, a number of them who were the ones actually doing the hard work in the administration. And he gave them a lot of support, right? So I think President Barroso has to identify people in his cabinet or in the administration that he can really, really bank on when it comes to some issues. And then it just provides the political shield for them to do the right things for the administration. Dario, what are your reactions to that? Coordination is obviously a problem. But again, I don't think the overall policy exactly is good enough not to have confusion. Um, I think if you have a policy objective that is not coherent from either the fiscal policy makers or from monetary policy makers, there's no way you find consistency. Mm. The government is trying to get more revenues as much as possible, giving customs very high revenue targets. And the same government will turn around and say, oh, the business environment, they want to make it easier to do businesses. So yes, the coordination is expected, given the confusing policy targets you have at the fiscal level and at the monetary level. So I really don't think that's a big of a problem. The biggest problem is that lack of vision to come up with a coherent policy that everybody buys into. Yes, we, we can talk about how Buari has a very good will among a lot of Nigerians, but does he inspire that confidence in his policymakers? Has he been able to use his influence to rally all ministries, departments, and agencies to a single objective for Nigeria? Mm. No, he hasn't. He has not been able to do that. And if you can't do that, then I don't see how you're sort of the leader that the country needs to move forward. So, again, let me just reiterate my point. My point is the thinking has not changed. When the thinking changes, when you see it in sort of the policies that come out of ministries, departments and agencies of the government and the CBN, trust me, my opinion on the future of the economy or the direction of the economy is going to change. The first thing President Buhari should do is to put his cabinet in order, put his house in order. 
And from then, when, when we see that consistency, when we see that strong vision for Nigeria, I think everybody will follow. Thank you very much, guys. I have been talking to economists, Omotola Abimbola and Adidai Obakari, who have been doing a lot of deep dive on the macroeconomy on the back of the unemployment report by the National Bureau of Statistics. Thank you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest. Or you can just subscribe directly at our website, ideasontrap.com. Thank you, and see you next time.